You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open. It's Waddle. His sixth touchdown pass of the day. Drive Time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolphins? And welcome to the Drive Time Podcast. Part of the Miami Dolphins podcast network covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield. And on today's show, one of my favorite episodes we do every year, a few times a year. It's time to step back and look at the roster and assess where we are at this point in the calendar. Free agency kind of coming to an end here a little bit, at least the first couple of waves. The draft coming up later, I should say next month, we're still in March, but kind of in a Midpoint of the offseason, let's go ahead and evaluate what this Dolphins roster looks like heading into the month of the draft. We'll do offense today, defense on Friday, that and a heck of a lot more. From somewhere in South Florida, this is the Drive Time Podcast. So now that we've hit that point of the, I don't know, second or third wave of free agency and there's like... Seven waves now as you go through post-June 1, you get into training camp and you still get some of those late acquisitions that happen with veteran players and who knows how long the Packers situation can draw out or the Ravens situation. You just seeming, It just seems like we get moves 12 months out of the year. Let's call it 11 given the kind of dead period in July. But what I'm trying to say is I want to take a step back today between the draft and the, the main part of free agency and just take sort of a 30,000-foot view of a roster that I think most of us feel pretty good about and will, of course, take shape, like I mentioned, over the next couple of months because, for the most part, you'll get some moves here and there. But once the draft comes and goes, we get those five or six players that we'll see, you know, new members of the Miami Dolphins, UDFA signed up. That's always a big chunk of players, 15, 20 players sometimes. Then it's pretty much OTAs, summer break, training camp, and then week one. It's going to be here before you know it. So we have, what are we at, 60 players, give or take here. We're about two-thirds of the way to the 90-man roster. But really, when you look at what the 53 could potentially be, the truth is you're probably there with about 45 or so of those guys, right? So draft picks, a couple of slots for the UDFAs to compete for, replacing potential injuries, whatever the case may be, you're pretty darn close to seeing the foundation and the bones and all of your 2023 Miami Dolphins roster. So with that, I think it's a good time to assess that roster. And man, just looking at it without even diving into the individuals off the top here, how they might fit or benefit from the systems, I just think you're hard-pressed to find a much better Dolphins roster since, for me, the easy answer is 2002. But when you look at the positions in which Miami are most stacked at, they sure as hell make up most of, if not all, of the premium positions When you consider which spots tend to break the bank in free agency, which spots go at the top of the draft each year, or if you just want to do it from a number standpoint, how the league spends their money at each position each year, your quarterbacks, your pass rushers, your wideouts, your pass protectors, your cover guys, right? Essentially the passing game uh, with run game elements being kind of 1B tier. And I say that because the 2002 team actually did a good job of foundational pieces at those premium spots too, especially when you consider how those spots have sort of shifted over the years, over the decades. Running back used to be that. For the younger audience, a lot of offenses actually used to base everything they did 
around a Ricky Williams, a Priest Holmes, a Larry Johnson, a Brian Westbrook, Curtis Martin, Corey Dillon. You get the idea. And conversely, I think you typically have your positional counterpart on the other side of the football, right? And you can usually determine it is by where would your high school player or your star high school player have played on the opposite side of the football back in high school. And again, maybe this is a generation thing. I haven't been to a high school football game since I graduated from there 17 years ago. Damn, man. Uh, Our running backs in high school were also our linebackers. Our wide receivers were also our DBs. Our quarterbacks typically played safety. Linemen typically played on the line on the opposite side too, right? So by the transitive property, I think that's right. I don't know math, but I'm going to use the word because it sounds smart. If running back was a premium spot, then so too was linebacker. And that's where a player like Hall of Famer Zach Thomas, who never left the field, ruled the middle of this defense. Jason Taylor certainly fit the mold of a blue chip player. Sam Madison, Patrick Sertan, Brock Marion, Tim Bowens. The offensive line had some dudes that year. I mean, how good was Jamie Nails that season? Let's get back on the rails here, Jamie. I say this because just glancing at the roster, I mean, you're just built for the modern game with top of the line players at the positions that I believe make the biggest impact in a football game in 2023. And as much as I can say the game has changed, that defense heavy run game 2002 team, they did fail to qualify for the playoffs at nine and seven. And they kind of had the same issues that the 2022 team did. Their quarterback missed a handful of games and Jay Fiedler broke his thumb but I like Tua Tungavailoa in 23 a lot more than I liked Jay Fiedler in 2002. Every team has their own mode of player evaluation. In the draft, it's typically numerical grades. Some teams use color coding, and that's what I've always done. Blue players equals blue chip. That, of course, goes back to the 90s vehicle with Shaq, the movie Blue Chips, uh, scouting players for for a college basketball team. That was a great movie. If you haven't seen that one, go back and check out Blue Chips. But that's kind of how that starts. Uh, But you can kind of look at the roster and and I I suppose assign your perception of each player and which category they fit into. Uh, That's where a lot of the guys stack up in terms of best of the best in terms of production, numbers, film, all that stuff. Then you have the projection of what you think they could be and that factors in as well. So when I take a look at it, it's what you've done, what I expect you to do going forward. We kind of marry all of that up for the complete package on a player. Like take Javon Holland, for instance. I, I think he's fringing on a blue player. I don't think his production would necessarily garner that type of evaluation but we also talked to something like I don't know what it was 12 film experts and analysts in Indianapolis and every single one of them that I asked about who can stand to benefit the most from Vic Fangio's defense they all said Javon Holland's a guy they think can become one of the best safeties if he's not already that player one of the best safeties in the National Football League. So for instance, a guy like him, maybe not two years of blue production, but for your number three, I am projecting blue for Javon Holland. But to bring this home before we get to the quarterback position on the offense, defense and Javon Holland will be Friday's podcast. And think about this as you are lifting weights on your walk, driving to work, wherever you listen to your podcast. How many blue chip players do you think are on this roster? And I'll do you one further. The next tier I used, which if you go back to the Locked On Dolphins whiteboard, uh, was plus starter. That was always my green color. A player who is in range to potentially make the Pro Bowl be known as one of the top guys at his position. But let's use a previous Dolphin as a good example here. I would say Chris Chambers lived in this category for most of his career. 
He made that run, that one Pro Bowl in 2005, but he was right on the fringe of, fringe, fringe of pushing for blue status really his entire career, but was just a player you could count on and knew that roster spot was solid, if not, you know, like his counterparts, Reggie Wayne, Marvin Harrison, you know, players like that back in those days. To me, the blue category for Miami, eight, maybe nine, maybe as many as 10. Then the plus starter, which was always green on my board, another 10 players. I mean, let's go ahead and just go over right now because looking at the projected lineups, it's impressive. And what I went through, and we'll get to the entire individual piece by piece here and tell you why I think this with all these players. But here's my roster breakdown heading into this. The blue chip, 90th percentile player at your position. You're within the top 90% of the players at your position. And that varies, obviously, for how many players play your spot. So for quarterback, what would that make up? The top, uh, let's see, one out of every 10. So I guess the top three or four players at your position. I guess I would extend that probably to top five or six because quarterback's a little more unique. And that's why we have, in my opinion, 10 blue chippers on this roster. We'll talk about each individual, like I mentioned, as we go along here. But I have the quarterback, two wide receivers, an offensive tackle, two interior offensive linemen, an interior defensive lineman, an edge rusher, a corner, and a safety. My plus starters, I've got eight of those. Those are 75th percentile, top three quarters of their position in the league. I have eight, the fullback, interior defensive line, one of them, two edges, a linebacker, two corners, and a safety. The quality starters, which is better than replacement level, means I'm expecting to get better than just plugging in an average type of player there. I've got eight of those as well with a running back, two edge, a linebacker, a corner, a safety, a kicker, and a punter. Replacement level is, it's not the worst thing in the world. It means you have a job in the NFL, but it means that you're always probably looking for upgrades there. I've got nine such players, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, offensive tackle, interior defensive line, linebacker, and the long snapper. Uh, the next category is depth, uh, incomplete evaluation, or special teams contributor. That's kind of where most of the players tend to fall because if you're young, you haven't played much, you go here. 14 of them, a quarterback, a running back, four wide receivers, two tight ends, two interior offensive linemen, an edge, a linebacker, a cornerback, a safety, a partridge, and a pear tree. And then the final spot is we don't really know uh, what you've got here, and they typically are the ones in red, 13 of those players. Uh, don't need to list off those positions here for this podcast, but in total, so 62 players, 10 blue chips, 18 players who are green or better. That's all but three of your starters that I think would qualify as top 75% of their position. It's pretty damn good. Orange or better, which is also, you know, better than your replacement level player, 26 players. That's every starter plus four rotational guys and then 13 in the red. That's where I have the roster outlook heading into the month of April. It is all cheery. It's all rosy. It's all looking up. Let's go ahead and take our first break right there and come back and do the individuals, starting with the quarterback position here on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Looking ahead at your 2023 Miami Dolphins as the roster is two-thirds of the way complete with 62 players in tow. The draft still to come. The late phases of free agency roster activity come August. All of that still ahead, but we have the bulk of the roster pretty much in place and in shape right here. We take a look at the quarterback room, and I told you guys about the color coding here already uh, between... Tua Tungavailoa, Mike White, and Skylar Thompson. We heard from Coach McDaniel there's going to be a battle for the number two quarterback job in training camp. We know who QB1 is. He gets the blue connotation, the blue coding here. And I'm saying that because of what I saw last season when he was healthy and playing and productive and engineering one of the top offenses in the National Football League and doing so much high-level stuff on top of what I expect a year-two jump to look like in the offense that's why he gets the blue tag as one of the top five or six players at his position uh, right now in the NFL. A yellow designation for a backup quarterback with uh, up and down spot uh, spot starting experience for Mike White replacement level. And then this evaluation on Skylar Thompson, obviously, with just a couple of starts and a handful of games still remains incomplete. But as a room, as a whole, this Dolphins quarterback position it's in a great spot, and I, this is probably what I wanted to look at heading into the offseason in terms of the construction. To me, the ideal quarterback room looks like this, where you have your bona fide starter, one of the best players at his position, and that's how I'm going to continue to view this guy, because the head coach views him that way, and this head coach knows more than you or I, and uh, I don't know, kind of matches my evaluation since like 2018 as well, so I'll just stick with that. Also, you've got the capable backup with that kind of fire starter mentality coming off the bench in a pinch who can play well from the jump, which I think is the key. Like, just don't come in cold and require a few series to get started. We've seen Mike White do that for the Jets in the past. And then the young guy pushing to challenge him and Skylar Thompson. Like, going into camp last year, I don't think many would have projected more than the practice squad for Skylar Thompson because most quarterbacks don't carry three QBs. But he did play in such a way all summer that it was undeniable that he belonged on the roster. You put him on the practice squad, he probably would have been snatched up pretty quickly just by the time you filed that transaction with the league office. Even though the performance in the regular season didn't really match that, I think it was certainly worth keeping him around uh, to get an eye, get an evaluation further based upon what he showed you in preseason because it was so good. And now with a second year here to develop in the system, can he take a big jump and challenge for that spot? It would be a, a certainly valuable move heading forward if Skylar Thompson were to achieve that role and that status because you then have him on club control for a couple more years on a, the cheapest contract imaginable uh, to be your backup behind Tua Tungavailoa. So that's kind of where you head into camp looking at this from a, a dollars and cents standpoint. But the fact that you have that entrenched starter and then competition with the depth and that guy pushing is a second year player that you still have afforded the opportunity to develop. To me, that's ideal. Like you have a different quarterback in each phase of their career or various stages of their career. It's like cooking a five course meal and you've got to balance the timing on all your dishes. The bread goes in right now. Let's go ahead and fire up that sauce and start mixing it in. Oh, the noodles are ready to be strained right now. You just have a lot going on and they have to try to finish around the same time. That's kind of what I'm looking at here with give me the freshest, hottest meal possible rather than having your protein sit on the warmer while you wait for your starch to finish. Just full of analogies in this podcast. That's what we do. So I love that, but I also want to talk about the skill of each of these players, and that's where the train slows and we go explore the weeds a little bit, as we are wont to do here on the Drive Time Podcast. I've been kicking around this content idea for some time, uh, and I think it's a good spot to explore it. It's what the league looks for, or even better, what equates to good quarterback play versus what you might see on social media, 
uh, fan sites or people that do YouTube channels who I, I see takes from all the time that f- just quite frankly don't operate in the same lane that the actual like league thinks because I see, you know, conspiracy and, uh, you know, what, what was the Deshaun Elliott thing? I saw some takes on that about how, I don't know, like, what are we doing here, man? But anyway, Twitter, I do this to myself. I get myself worked up and then I, I can't even begin to conversate about it because it just annoys me so much. But the idea is that Twitter is not a real place, right? Something like 6% of the population has an account. And of that 6%, another minuscule fraction is actually active on the social media website that continues to get worse under new management. But I digress. It's just not a real representation of the real world and real people. And I think that's the most true with how football is discussed on this website. I saw a tweet the other day from a fellow who fancies himself a draft guru and with these bubbling rumblings, is that even a word, Uh, that Frank Reich and the Panthers might already have settled on their guy before the trade-up? I mean, who the hell knows? But what I've seen uh, the most of is that that guy is CJ Stroud. And the tweet I saw was, they better surround that guy with weapons. And the genesis of that tweet was that Stroud isn't the athletic marvel that Anthony Richardson or Will Levis are, right? Or come with the scramble acrobatics and highlight reel that Bryce Young has to offer, right? Okay, cool. So why do you think the Panthers think this way, assuming they do? Also, shouldn't the goal be to maximize your investment? Like this is a sidebar to the sidebar, especially at the most important position of all in all of sports. Why would you buy a Ferrari body and drop in an Accord engine with it and give you know a player... Antonio Callaway and Isaiah Ford is his top weapons in an offense. It makes no sense, right? Always surround your quarterback with weapons, especially when they're on that rookie contract and that rookie season trying to get the league figured out. It's a tough position to learn and a tough league to learn. So the disconnect is this. Draft Twitter thinks that tangible traits are what makes a great quarterback. And this is true for all positions. I think it's perfectly ironic that Zach Thomas is going to go into the Hall of Fame as this type of debate wages on endlessly. Zach was certainly a great athlete, but he was, was he in the Derek Brooks and Brian Erlacher mold? Was he Ray Lewis? No, he certainly was not. That's why he was a fifth round draft pick, but he was just as good of a football player. Why is that? Because playing football is typically what makes a football player good at playing football. And I'm laughing as I'm writing this because it sounds so stupid, but get on Twitter and tell me that's not necessary. And so to bring this back to CJ Stroud and ultimately our quarterback here in Tua Tungavailoa, You know what made two of the fifth pick in the draft and probably number one if he never suffers that hip injury? You know why the Panthers are being linked to CJ Stroud? Because they excel with rare, rare ability traits that translate to the National Football League. That throw with elite timing and anticipation. They are accurate as hell. They give their wide receivers chances by reacting to their routes faster than the defense can. And you'll hear the same BS arguments. Ohio State and Bama had loaded offenses. Yeah, they they were that. Absolutely. But do you really think that Mercedes wins seven straight championships just because of the car? Or do you think Lewis Hamilton had something to do with that? And another thing. This isn't even to disparage the two quarterbacks in terms of their escapability, their arm strength, or whatever 5% of the time trait we want to blow up into being the most important because it's what gets the highlight reels going. Go watch Tua's game, man. There's a two-play sequence in the Chicago game right before the Jeff Wilson touchdown where Tua gets pressure off his left immediately. He's dead to rights. It's a free run, squared up at the quarterback. Tua's going to have to get off that spot to make this guy miss in the pass rush. And he does that. He spins out of the pressure, steps up, and throws the football away. 
He knows the play is dead. He knows second downs, no bueno. I have to get to third down. It sets up third and six where he identifies Wilson one-on-one, gets the ball to him before he comes out of the break, and that allows him to turn up not just to find the sticks, but find the pylon. And in that moment, you get erasing the elite athleticism off the edge that most teams have these days when the pass protection breaks down and your play call is kaput. You get the anticipation to understand how to maximize the route given the coverage in a situation where the defense has the advantage, right? Third and six is close to long. It's it's third and long medium. Uh, I think third and four to third and six is I, I categorizes as medium, but you get this, the, the picture and the idea to understand that you have to get the ball out quick against that leverage, against that coverage to find Jeff Wilson one-on-one to give him a chance to turn up because the defense wants to attack, to rally and tackle and get him down short of the sticks. But the timing and throw allows him to get the extra yardage after the catch and not just the first down yardage, the touchdown yardage. Athleticism, timing, placement, all on display in elite fashion there. How about the Houston game? Remember that just was not our best day in terms of pass protection. Teron Armstrong exits the game early and Tua's under pressure really all game long. Go watch it. I challenge you to go back and watch that game again. He is erasing free runners and hitting chunk gains despite what I would call our offensive line's worst day of the season in pass protection. Uh, Other days, they were phenomenal. That's football, right? You're never going to get the same performance back-to-back really uh, in a given game or given week or given season, I should say. So I watch our quarterback do these things that translates to success. I see him as the perfect fit in this offense that requires pristine timing, understanding of how your concepts attack the vulnerabilities presented in a given defensive play call. I find myself making this argument so often because to me it's so easy to see, yet we have to listen to debate shows or Twitter discourse try and tell me that the wheel has been reinvented. It hasn't. Yes, there are more and more athletes at the position, but you know what makes those quarterbacks elite? It's not the two plays a game where they spin out of pressure like two in Baltimore on the Craycraft touchdown. It's the stick nod throw to Waddle where he moves a linebacker and throws with perfect touch over one defender under another. I go back to Patrick Mahomes. The dude's a unicorn, right? But you know why he's elite? You know why they won the Super Bowl despite losing the best wide receiver in the National Football League? Because Patrick Mahomes learned how to attack vulnerabilities and play patient against the ever-present two deep looks the NFL has rolled out in recent years. He learned to not force the ball and to limit turnovers. Look at our playoff game. Josh Allen's a great player. I'd say he's top three quarterback, probably number two for me. But he struggled because he tried to push the ball down the field all game long. He averaged over 15 yards per air throw. That's a crazy number. He tried to make the splash highlight play and it backfired. And their offense wasn't that good in that game against a defense that struggled all year long. They gave the Dolphins defense points as well as not, you know, converting a lot of first downs for long periods of time in that game. And the Dolphins did a great job battling on those and and not really getting beat deep beyond those first couple of drives. But the athleticism also led to a fumble scoop and score points on the board. I'm just saying the reason Allen became Josh Allen was the way that he learned how to really master the idea of playing the position in 2021, really 2020 uh, under um, Brian Dayball. That's who Tua is to me. He's a savant at playing the position, and it's why he was one of the top five QBs in the NFL last year and why I list him as such there. I think so highly of his game. I think so highly of his fit in this system. That's the most undervalued thing, I think, by football, the football cognoscente. We talk about it in the draft. Where you go is even more important than how high you go, and they say that because of the fit. McDaniel the person and McDaniel's system maximizes those traits and makes Tua a special player. And I think the best is yet to come as he gets more and more comfortable in Coach McDaniel's system. 
That's why I think you have to feel very good about this loaded roster we're talking about being engineered or pioneered or conducted by a quarterback who I feel is on par with that star level caliber play. That's a lot talking about just one position, one player, really. Uh, I think the way Mike White plays in the system with his timing and understanding of the game is a nice transition from QB1 to QB2 in the event you don't have QB1. And then Skyler with a full year and tons of tape to study on himself in that exact same position. Fired up for this QB room. I, you probably keep three, I imagine, with the, some of the health concerns I went through last year, but we'll see. That's uh, a long way away. That was long. Let's go ahead and just pick it right back up here at the running back position because uh, we're on up against break number two, and we're only through one position so far. But let's go ahead and talk about the running backs. Five, a room full of five players, one is a fullback, and it's a full running back scenario where the quarterback room feels pretty set. It never hurts to bring a fourth arm to camp. We'll see. I, I doubt it, but we'll see. I think the running back room could be set, or you could still drop in another player from essentially any level of investment. By that, I mean you could make a legit case to spend pick 51 on a running back, and I wouldn't bat an eye at that. I think you could also make a case you only bring in a UDFA or two in training camp. But right now it looks like this. Raheem Mostert, Jeff Wilson, Savon Ahmed, Miles Gaskin. That's how it finished last year. That's how it's going to go into the year this year. Alec Ingold also part of that fold. Let's go ahead and start with the fullback. Uh, who I have is a green player, one of the more valuable pieces on the roster, simply because he just does what no one else really can. Yeah, you could probably recreate some of his snaps in the interim with your tight end of choice. And we didn't get a chance to really see who that was last year because we always had Ingold available, even with the injured hand. But he unlocks so many different formations and plays. And man, watching him wipe out edges on so many of those big runs where he has to come out and dig out the backside, in addition to what he offers as a fullback and, and pass protection and running the football, there's a reason why only Patrick Ricard and Baltimore and Kyle Juszczyk played more snaps last year among fullbacks. I thought Raheem Mostert, who gets a orange tag for me, a, a quality starter, got better as the year went along, and I could see him pushing for a green tag, returning from his injury that wiped out the entire 2021 season. With how quick he gets to the perimeter and then hits the hole even faster, I thought it got better all year long. I think it's like Tua, just a great fit for the system. I know Teron Armstead has talked about how good Raheem is for this particular running game. The big plays in the run game, the drive starters, his chemistry with Tua, the way he is in the locker room, the year here in the system with largely the same offensive line, I think the best is yet to come there. And then Jeff Wilson, who I gave a, a yellow tag replacement level, but also really closer to orange as well. We'll see how that plays out this year. But coming over from San Francisco after not having many opportunities there, the injury late in the year, uh, some pass pro and drops that happened late in the season. Let's go ahead and see more before we bump that up. But he arrives with quite the impact and that touchdown production, some big tackle breaking runs, quite the compliment in terms of a one-two punch with a speed and power situation. I thought we saw some of the ability in the passing game early before the drops occurred. But I think that uh, when defenses want to play like Buffalo and stay in that nickel defense all game long with lighter boxes, I think Jeff Wilson's a good answer to that puzzle. Y'all know I'm a huge Savon Ahmed fan, speed, pass catching ability. I think he's come a long way in pass pro, special team contributor. Love the way he can fulfill that role, but also when you're down in the back, he doesn't give you some massive drop off in offense. Like you still have the speed, you still have the smarts and some of the intelligence that goes along with the running game. To me, that's the premier type of depth back or ideal type of depth back. He does get the purple tag because not a lot of offensive production, but special teams for sure. And just good quality depth. And then Miles Gaskin with his vision and smooth running style was probably the best pass catcher of the group, but lots of production in this league, even though it wasn't last year for Miles Gaskin, he comes back for his fifth season with the Miami Dolphins. 
So as a whole, I think you could look at it and say there could be some potential upgrades. Maybe you didn't get the splash move you wanted, but I think that continuity certainly is valuable. I think we saw a lot of the backs get better as the year went along. And I think the idea is that a full offseason, a full year of Raheem and Jeff could really benefit you in a way you didn't get the run game going as last year. But also wouldn't be surprised, like I said, because I think you, you have to look at this offense and say the next thing this offense can unlock is the running game. And if they can do that, then maybe this offense can go from being really damn good to borderline special. Let's go ahead and take our last break right there and come back and do wide receivers, tight ends, offensive line. That's next at Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Back here on the late March roster evaluation edition of the Drive Time Podcast, we are two positions in, one long winding rant as the quarterback position tends to go for your boy on the podcast here. We have three more to go, wide receivers, tight ends, offensive line. Let's go ahead and pick it back up with arguably my favorite position group on the entire team, the wideouts. Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. they both get the blue tags. I mean, that's pretty clear and obvious to me. Uh, blue chip elite level player Cedric Wilson gets the yellow the replacement level and then I have a handful of purple incomplete evaluations Eric Azukama obviously uh, Braxton Barrios gets that category for his special teams prowess not because of lack of evidence uh, River Craycraft kind of that same mold Braylon Sanders falls in the category of uh, just not enough evidence yet and then Freddie Swain the acquisition off waivers also goes purple because he's a special teams guy through and through for Freddie Swain so as you look at this room with two blue chippers, one replacement level and five uh, incomplete evaluations, or I should say four with uh, three with two special teams aces, what really needs to be said about 10 and 17? I mean, they make the offense go, their speed to threaten vertically, and how often we hit those vertical shots, which was the best vertical passing game in the NFL by the numbers a season ago, which is also hilarious to me uh, in the face of the discourse. They, they dictate the way defenses have to stretch themselves, and it creates much more room for everybody else in the offense. And this is all possible, yes, because of that speed, but you wouldn't be able to get that ripple effect if Tyreek and Jalen were not Tyreek and Jalen. And what I mean by that is the fact that if they just they just go hard, like going 100 miles an hour at all times, not taking reps off, that is what makes the defense have to respect them on every single play. So that's a marquee trait, but man... These are two of the best route runners in the entire National Football League. The way Tyreek pays attention to the details, and just because my route has offered an opening now, he never cheats that route. He's going to maximize and say, I'm going to expand this window that the quarterback has and stretch the defense further by finishing this route and driving the leverage until I possibly, until I really can't possibly do it anymore. We've talked about this before. With Waddle, when watching the games back, the way he maintains speed and gets around reroutes is impressive. He does this move where he kind of takes both of his hands and almost swims over the defender like you'd see from a great pass rusher. It gets them out leveraged and allows Jalen to rip through the secondary uncovered without really slowing down. It's a really, really quality trait in number 17. These dudes are so damn elite and I cannot wait to watch what they do in year two. I think it gets even better for the Miami Dolphins. 
Then it's depth. It's a variety of skills. It's some competition. We broke down Berrios' ability to win in small spaces and how that could pair well with 10 and 17 in certain packages. And to me, I look at this room as, you know, we saw it last year with Sherfield and Craycraft getting a lot of the work, kind of not thinking about it in terms of snap counts, like one, two, three, four, five receiver, but rather how you package them with their certain offensive groupings. Like, Barrios to me makes a ton of sense in third down 11 personnel, like third and short 11 personnel for his ability to win quickly and maybe be a blitz beater, a one-on-one beater when you have Tyreek and Jalen out there. You know what Craycraft offers? He's a real knowledgeable player in the offense, a great blocker with just a good understanding of timing and pacing of routes and how to marry up his landmarks with two drops. Also some special teams contributions there. I think we saw Braylon Sanders' ball skills in camp and preseason, then a few targets in the season. I think you expect him to compete for a spot. Freddie Swain back, claimed off waivers. And then Eric Ezukama to me is the catalyst of this part of the wide receiver group. And how you feel about him, I think, dictates where you go with this position group from here up until September. I just think the talent is there, man. The way he bounces off tacklers, the way he can make those contested catches in one-on-one situations. I keep thinking about the catch he made. I think it was against Philly in the preseason. There was a slot fade and the way he ran the route and stacked and elevated and made the catch and survived the ground. We talk about Barrios' ability to win in short spaces. EE offers a little something, a little bit of something different in that role with his vertical prowess and the rack ability we saw in college. And the same way those one-on-one chances for Berrios are attractive to beat the quick zone hitters and let's move the chains. Ezukama could potentially be a guy that gets those opportunities, slips a tackle with no one near him, and then turns a, a five-yard gain into a 50-yard touchdown. If that carries over to the NFL, watch out. I love his game. I I hope it goes that way, but he, to me, is the catalyst. I think conventional wisdom says this room is ready for camp, but I also don't think the position's off the board completely in the draft and definitely not out of the UDFA portion at all. I've mentioned the expertise we have with McDaniel and Welker and their wide receiver background. I'm all about letting them go uncover a gem somewhere akin to what they were able to get last year with Braylon Sanders as UDFA. We'll see how he develops here in year number two. Let's go ahead and talk about the tight end group. And, you know, I think going into the offseason, this is a group you looked at where you can make the most strides and most improvement in an offense where it's tough to get players up to speed at that position. And frankly, I think this position really kind of suffers across the league as a whole in terms of the overall value you have with it. It's hard to find good players here, man. Like, ask the fantasy community. Tight end always seems to be one of the tricky ones unless you go for a Travis Kelsey or, you know, a formerly Rob Gronkowski, but you have to go in the first couple of rounds of your draft to get those kind of guys. I think the NFL has the same issue here. But we have, I've got a, a... uh, two replacement level players and Durham Smythe and Eric Sauber. And then Tanner Connor is purple entirely because of his unknown nature. I would also maybe shift Smythe to purple as well because you know you have a core special teamer in his presence on the roster. But I've been on this kick for a while now that this seems like the room that from the talent standpoint, obviously, but also just a number standpoint seems incomplete. Like if we're at 62 players, there's obviously a lot more to go. We carried five tight ends last year heading into the season opener. So the math tells you two more, at least one more, right? Durham Smythe is back and you know exactly what you're getting with Durham. He's the top of the line special teams, some quality uh, reps in the running game, uh, capable as a pass catcher when you need him in that role. But obviously you kind of go towards the receivers more in this offense. Then you've got 
two relatively unknowns as far as Dolphins fans go. We broke down Saubert's game on the episode last week, and man, I'm intrigued by his game. Hand size near the top of the charts in terms of all-time combine measurements. I think you see that in the way he catches the football. And let's be honest, tight ends typically have to make catches in traffic. That's where the big mitts come into play for Saubert. And I, th- I tend to think that this could be the best year of his career coming into this offense, uh, just based upon the tape and the fit and the opportunity that he has right now. Now we'll see what that opportunity becomes because how about the potential of whether it's a newcomer or Tanner Connor who has track speed, a big frame, clocked some impressive times running down the field on kickoff coverage. He's one of these guys that I'm not really sure how to evaluate because I don't think we have seen enough of what he has to offer. But if he can take a big step, what a boon that would be for not just a tight end room, but the entire offense and football team in general, because this is one area I think we all agree Dolphins have to get better. They haven't done that yet. The Sauber is a nice start there, but I think you probably look at another addition. But if Tanner Connor can elevate his game to be one of the guys that contributes, that would be massive for this roster in so many ways. Let's go ahead and finish on the offensive line. And I know the audience here was happy to hear Coach McDaniels kind of pontificating about the position group, where they currently stand, what is still to come in terms of player acquisition. And you look at the offensive tackle position, like obviously Teron Armstead, blue player, Austin Jackson, I think to this point has been replacement level. And then you have three players kind of in that red territory where you just don't really know. I mean, all three of these guys were unemployed at different times last year. So that gives you a feel for where they are currently, but that can always change, of course. But you have to love what you got from Teron Armstead in his first year when he was out there, just so solid. And I, you think about, you know, what Connor Williams was in the pivot and what he did in his new position. I think the value both those guys offer in terms of their production production, but also what they can do with your left guard and their ability to just so frequently be right in terms of getting the protection slide correct. Identify your green dog blitzes, your bluffs, your backouts, everything in between. That communication skill set reverberates across the entire offensive line. Going back to just the tackles now, Austin Jackson's one of the big keys on this roster in terms of him getting back, getting right, and getting healthy and playing the best football of his career. That's what he has to do this season. Had a good camp last year, but then the attrition began from the opening game. Like He gets injured, uh, comes back out, and doesn't have a great game against the Texans, goes back on the IR for the rest of the season. Getting him healthy and playing to that potential we saw back in 2020 before his first injury that year, when I thought, like, man, this guy looks like a franchise left tackle. Uh, That Jacksonville game on Thursday night was incredible. Uh, To get him back playing like that would be such a potential big lift for this team because of what Mike McDaniel talks about in terms of the, the spending on the offensive line. Like, if you want to go out and spend $16 million a year on Mike McGlinchey, you're going to have to sacrifice somewhere else. You're going to have to sacrifice, you know, at your skill positions with going and getting Jalen Ramsey and, and Xavier Howard and a future in the future paying Javon Holland. You're going to have to sacrifice if you want to pay a premium player like you had to pay Teron Armstead at left tackle. Like you can't have them all premium players at those spots. So for him to come back and, and realize that potential in year four, and maybe, you know, that makes the, the cost for year five affordable again, Maybe that's a potential route, but he has the opportunity to really help the Dolphins books, their roster, their production, and ultimately their chance to win a championship, which is number one, right? So key, key player in Austin Jackson. Beyond that, we saw Lamb come in for a pinch and play well, but minimal playing time and then really nothing from from, uh, Jerron Christian and then Keon Smith in limited action. Uh, had some struggles as well. Like the tight end position, this is a group that would seem to be going a little bit light in terms of... uh, 
having how many guys they have going into camp with just the five, they're going to be adding guys to that room, no doubt. On the interior offensive line, mentioned Connor Williams. I just think he's such an asset in an offense that really utilizes the athletic ability at center that Connor has. Not to mention working with Tua to get the protection calls right. He's intelligent. He helps us in more ways than meet the eye. And alongside Robert Hunt, who I think with the way he plays behind his pads, generates push and has great awareness and pass protection, to me, he's on track to having a Pro Bowl type of career where every year you can count on that guy making the Pro Bowl. Doesn't have the name recognition yet, but I think he will get there eventually. I think last year's performance in a, a game or a recognition that kind of takes a couple years to build at that position, I think next year for Robert Hunt could be the year that he breaks through. Those guys have been so damn good. To me, they're both blue players. I have Robert Jones, who's played at replacement level for me over the early part of his career incomplete still on Liam Eichenberg because of the injuries and the time missed and the rough rookie season. I have Dan Feeney kind of in that same mold, just hasn't played a whole lot. And I think this system and the potential of backup center could be a, a boon for him. So maybe he has a chance to kind of change that coloring as much as Liam Eichenberg does. And then we have Lester Cotton in the red to round out that group. But then the left guard position, another one that has several players that got time a year ago, a spot that I don't think is as important as the right tackle spot, but to see someone like Liam Eikenberg or Robert Jones seize that position, gosh, that would be huge. And Robert Jones's sheer mass makes him a good matchup in pass pro. So I like his game there a little bit. Uh, Liam Eikenberg had some improvements last year, but then came back and it wasn't kind of, you know, what he was hoping for in that second go around after the injury. I'm really curious to see where Feeney winds up. The backup center potential, I think he could battle for a starting job at left guard because of his fit and skill set. And then Lester Cotton got some time last year in the playoff game. I think you know what you have at left tackle, center, right guard, and then some potential to run out the rest of the group. But right now, not enough for a five-man group. The idea to me is to get yourself in a position where you don't have a glaring hole at any of the spots, whether it's an incumbent, whether it's improvements, whether it's an imported player. We'll see what happens, but I expect this coaching staff to understand they have to get better at those two spots, and we'll see what happens there. So that's your offense. I've got the quarterback as a blue player. I have a orange running back, which means a quality starter and a replacement level player there as well with a green fullback. That's a plus starter. I've got two blue chip wide receivers and a handful of developmental players in that group. Uh, I've got the best thing at tight end is a developer, a replacement level player there in Eric Saubert. On the offensive tackle position, I have a blue chip player, Teron Armstead. I have a replacement level player there as well, and then a handful of reds. And then on the interior, I have two blue chip players in Connor Williams and Robert Hunt, one replacement level, and then we'll see on the rest. So pretty good look at the offense there. Defense going to compete in a similar vein. What is the defense on the Friday podcast? Not going to be as long as this one because I don't have a quarterback rant to go on as I tend to do on the offensive podcast here. That's my time though. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast with Seth and Juice. Check out the YouTube channel for Dolphins Today, media availabilities, and much, much more. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline and Cameron. Daddy's coming upstairs for dinner right now.